92nd Street Y Online Media is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. This program, part of our New York Newsday Pulitzer Prize series, features legendary journalist Jimmy Breslin. It was recorded on May 16, 1989, before a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. On behalf of my colleagues at New York Newsday, we want to thank the Y for hosting this series and honoring our paper and our Pulitzer Prize winning columnist. It isn't that Jimmy Breslin defies description, it's just that it takes a braver person than I to do it without the self-consciousness that a phrase might go amiss or a summing up might leave something out, something he thinks ought to be in. You see, Jimmy listens very hard and he remembers. He prizes accuracy and concision and scorns language that ambles off the path, ambles off the path to the point. Whenever he writes, he has a point and a point of view, authentic but not without artifice, elemental in its force and meaning but not without complexity, forceful, but not without feeling. And if you read today's column, brave, but not without the fears that bind. His columns are the stuff that give character and soul to a newspaper. They give readers clarity, not obscurity. They provide convictions not endless clarifications. They come from a well of hard work and passion, a well that seems always at a high water mark. At New York Newsday, we are pleased that his long and distinguished career has brought him to us and in turn to our readers. Don Forst, our editor, who worked with him long ago at the Herald Tribune, looked out the window of his office one night and saw Jimmy Breslin talking to Murray Kempton, Murray who will appear later in this series. And he said, and this is an old and jaded editor, it's a thrill to have them in this newsroom. Jimmy Breslin, as much a New Yorker as New York ever made, and as best a chronicle, chronicler of our town as ever a newspaper had. Thank you. Uh, I'm here because I was told to be here. It's the first thing. And I also was told uh, at the, in the newspaper office if I could have a guest with me. And I said, certainly, I mean, everyone else is going to have a guest and I'll get one. You know, pre uh, pre preferably, they said, someone with a big name. And I said, don't worry, I'll produce one. I have to sit down and write the thing alone. <clears throat> and now I got to come here and bring somebody with me to help explain who the hell I am, forget about it. I told them, I told them I'd have somebody here. You know, I'd, I'm going to come on a stage and then let somebody else share half the bow or stand in the light. So I told him, no, I couldn't get anybody big or something. Huh? 
I'm here myself. You know, they, I heard the two, they mentioned that Baker's not a bad fellow, and I think he's, uh, uh, if he, uh, when he writes straight essays, he's probably the best I've read. Uh, Buckley's a very nice fellow, you'd never know it listening to him. Uh, <clears throat> and I'm, uh, I'm just about to stand here with a Buckley half the night, forget about it. I did have a guest, and the guest is here. The guest got as far as the place and decided she would go home. She came here with her husband. I picked them up on 30th Street and Broadway. They're not people who were going to talk a lot, and I thought I could sit here and talk to them for you, but both of them were a little afraid of coming in, not afraid of the audience, but afraid if somebody heard anything they were saying, it could hurt them. So let me tell you, I'll just introduce my guest right now off a notebook, which we took notes as we talked to her today. She works in a photocopying place in Manhattan. Her name is Marie, and her husband is Carlos, and they live in the Baisley Park housing in New York, in Queens. Next door to them, each morning, when they wake up at 6 o'clock, a woman named Tokyo is making crack in her apartment. And it's for the entire area of South Jamaica. She's one of the main people who makes it. The apartment next door is jammed, and when the woman, uh, Marie, has four kids at home, she's had five and one of them is in jail, she already has lost one to the trade. When she takes her kids out of the apartment to take them to school, they all have to hold a hand over their faces to keep the chemical smell of the crack, which is loaded in the halls as they're cooking it in the apartment to keep it from making the meal. And they also have to look straight ahead because everybody in the doorway in the apartment next door is armed. Now, the, there is one kid next door who runs the show. He runs it in the morning from 5.30 in the morning till 8.30 in the morning. His name is Troy, and he's 13 years old. He carries a gun, and he wears much jewelry. As she says, the quota, more jewelry than a jewelry store. Kids with guns, you're talking no more than 14. He's 13. He runs the inside operation. The boss is named Justice. He's outside on the street. He has a Mercedes, a Jeep, and a motorcycle that he rides 100 miles an hour. He's 21. He's in charge of the whole neighborhood. Now, the 13-year-old Troy, they bought him a little scooter, and he goes all around the community. At 8.30 in the morning, this is my guest Marie talking. At 8.30 in the morning, Troy leaves the apartment where they make the crack and he goes to school. He goes to school every day, she says, because I take my kids to school and I see him there. He's only missed three days since September. He even lets his mother bring him to school. Then he comes home after school and plays in the yard. There's a playground there. She said, I sit and look out my window and I see the kids on monkey bars, on swings, running around, they're too young to play basketball, still. They're running around, playing, and then at eight o'clock, everything changes, and instead of kids on monkey bars, I see little monsters who are walking around under the streetlights selling crack. That's her view of the neighborhood from where she lives. 
She said, a kid with two guns goes crazy once in a while. Last week, a nine-year-old was shot in the neck, and there was shooting on Guy Brewer Boulevard, and a small boy of under nine years old was shot in the leg, and he screamed, don't tell my mother, and he ran away, and nobody could catch him to take him to the hospital. She said, there's an older, the older people like it because it's a good income for them. Older man, she's got a man 74 in a wheelchair who sits on the street and sells it. It's become uh, a, it's just part of the life of the projects. They, she says that about 78 to 80 percent, her husband's a figure man, he does, uh, Carlos said, cut in, he said, I would say 78 percent of the people in my projects smoke crack and she was gonna say about 80. And they just sit there at night and can't leave the place. The drug is part of the economy of, the, of South Jamaica. It's the major part of the economy around them. And I'm talking about a place now which has been on television many times. You've seen hundreds of uh, hundred, literally a hundred stories showing cops crashing into these projects in South Jamaica and arresting all the big known drug dealers, cleaning the place out, much as you saw last night on the television where the federal marshals in Washington cleared out a housing project of crack sellers. Well, I'm giving you a woman that was going to come here and talk about her life and the projects, but she's afraid because the 14, the 13-year-old boy next door, Troy, he will be 14 in July, will shoot her and has promised to shoot her, rub them out, as he says. If it, and she didn't want to get up here and talk and just, I don't know, just some fear, maybe somebody would hear she was here. So she got halfway here and then went home with her husband. But... In her project, as she could tell you, they have come in in these housing with FBI, with federal narcotics agents, cleared the place out. She saw it on television last night. She watched them clear the place out in Washington. And it's ridiculous. You take them all away, and they are replaced by a 13-year-old boy and a 14-year-old boy and a 21-year-old out on the street walking like a general, running the whole business. So I think that this business of uh, just putting them in jail is great. They belong in jail. They're desperate people. But if you think that somebody isn't going to replace them the minute you, they, they go into jail, you're wrong. And that leaves you then with the basic question, what happens when, they, when the others come out of jail? What happens when, the, when a guy comes out of jail at 24 and 25 years old is he comes back to the neighborhood and there's a 15-year-old on the street corner who tells him to get lost. It's now my block and you're an old man, go away. And they have a shootout and whoever wins the shootout re owns the corner. And that's, all, that's the only thing I see that's getting accomplished with a, a program of, uh, of thinking, a way of thinking which is old fashioned, back into the 20s and 30s when you just fill the prison and forget about them. It doesn't work that way anymore because drugs, it isn't a crime crack anymore. It's part of the economy. It's a way of life. It's something we've never experienced before in this city where crime has truly become a way of life. And it isn't considered a crime. She says, the, she says this 13-year-old's mother does not 
think it's wrong for him to sell crack and bring the money home. Where the hell is the money going to come from if he doesn't bring it home? If he doesn't sell crack and bring home money, she won't have any money. There'll be money from nowhere. So she's not about to tell her kid not to do it. And if he shoots somebody, well, don't get caught. And that's my guest for tonight, and she's not here. And, if the, and that's the story on notes, and here she is here. And she doesn't want to speak in public too much. Now I'll tell you about myself. I, uh, I'm flattered to be here because of the uh, enormous academic qualifications which allow me to stand here and speak tonight <clears throat> on diverse topics with great perception. Uh, during a, you mentioned a political campaign in the city of New York in which I once unfortunately became involved, there was a scurrilous rumor passed about to the effect that I was a high school dropout. And being reasonably alert, I was able to take that charge and isolate it and nail it for all to see for the lie that it was and produce documents attesting that I had attended the New York City secondary school system the full five years. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, took, I took that background plus at the time an alert 95 IQ or so into the only business that would support it, and that was the newspaper business. <laughs> and... Uh, I wanted to be a sports rider because you could get into the racetrack free and they had always had beer in the press box in the racetrack and you could get into the fights on Friday night free. And it was, and it was very easy to write sports. You didn't have to think. And it was a perfect, uh, perfect way for me, a, a big party and not much thought. And then one day I uh, stepped out of that and I, made it to wherever I am now uh, through the failure of someone else, which of course is the way everybody makes it. Uh, you step on the body of the one who fell down in front of you. I, uh, in my case, he was, uh, uh, his name was Marvin Throneberry. He was the first baseman for the New York Mets long time ago. I thank God you're an older audience. I got a chance with you. He was uh, first baseman for the New York Mets the first year they ever had a a team. And for those of you who don't know him, he's the ball guy you see on those light beer commercials. Once in a while he says, I knew something would go wrong. Uh, I made my life. He made my life for me. And uh, most people have mementos of their careers about the house. Uh, maybe a, perhaps a picture or an autograph picture or something. I have a grotto to Marvin Throneberry. <laughs> And it came as a result of a Sunday afternoon in the old Polo Grounds, which is now a housing project on 155th Street, and the team was the New York Giants, not the San Francisco Giants, and they played the Chicago Cubs in a doubleheader, and I was there to cover it as a sports writer for Hearst newspaper, which is no longer here, the Journal American. And the, in the first inning of the first game, it was the first year of the New York Mets, and they were the worst team in the history of sports, amateur or professional. They lost 120 games. And in this doubleheader, the there were two men out, two runners on in the first inning of the first game, and Throneberry hit the ball between the outfielders. Two runs scored. He raced around a third and uh, slid and jumped up and looked up for the plaudits from the few knots of people in the stands. And at first base, the first baseman for the Chicago Cubs, who then was Ernie Banks, said to the umpire, can I have the ball? The man didn't touch first base. The umpire gave Banks the ball. He stepped on first base. That meant the runs don't count, Thromberry's out, and the inning's over. 
In the dugout, the manager for the New York Yankees, Casey Stengel, did a pirouette. He was an old man, and he was used to managing uh, the Yankees, which had uh, uh, Joe DiMaggio, Whitey Ford, Mickey Mantle, Phil Rizzuto. He had all these ball players. Now he was with the Mets, and he had Marvin Throneberry. <laughs> and in the in the second game, in the sixth inning of the second game, many hours later, the Mets lost the first game 13-2. to two. And if you think I pulled a number out of the air, that's about what it was, believe me. Now, we go to the sixth inning of the second game, and it, it seemed as if the sun had baked everything to a standstill, and they were doing the same thing over. Two out, again two runners on, again Throneberry hits the ball between the outfielders. Again, everybody scurries home, and Throneberry goes into third, and again at first base, the first baseman for the Chicago Cubs, Ernie Banks said, can I have the ball? The man still didn't touch first base. The umpire gave him the ball, and Banks just daintily put a foot on first base. That meant the runs don't count. Throneberry's out, the whole thing is over, and the Mets lose 11-2. to two. Now, later, at dusk, Stengel was sitting on a stool in the, in the Giants clubhouse, in the Mets clubhouse in center field. And uh, I came in and he was having a cigarette. Then he looked at the clubhouse in attendant and he said, get me that Throneberry, I gotta talk to him. He was shaking his head. So Throneberry came in and he was tying his tie. You know, they think a doubleheader, they're working. They play like working overtime, two games of baseball. He's tired. So. Stengel looked at him and he said, are you an adult? And Throneberry said, why? Stengel said, I heard stories all my life, you know, in bars or uh, while we're traveling, fellas lying about how they didn't touch first base or the man cheated and he never even touched uh, this base. He didn't do this, he didn't do that. He says, I never saw it happen for real. He said, you've done it twice in one day in front of my eyes. He said, what the hell is the matter with you? And Thromberg said, I don't know why it's so weird, I never touched second either. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was good. It was a very good line. It was the start of a good career. He, we went from there to the bar of the Essex House Hotel, Stengel and Breslin, young Breslin, and Thirsty. Went to the bar, the Essex House Hotel, and Stengel never talked. He just got to the bar, and the guy knew what to give him. Manhattan's, one of those foul-smelling, all that vermouth and all that. I can, I don't like them. I was drinking. And uh, uh, he just sat there. He never said a word. He just kept holding the glass out and drinking it. So finally he said to me, I'm an old man, and my mind can't take these uh, shocks. Like watching this throne, Barry said, I'm going to fall apart. I'm going to go home to California with Edna, my wife, and we're going to forget this because this is lunacy. He said, but uh, I don't understand you. He said, now you're going to write this for a newspaper that's going to be under everybody's heel on a subway in the morning. He said, and the stuff's way better than that. This is a very important matter you're looking at. He said, this should make you a rich fella. You ought to write a book about Marvin Throneberry because he truly is the one biggest imbecile ever to live on this earth. He said, that's worth the book, the one biggest imbecile you found, wasn't it? Ever to live? I said, that'd be good. So we had a couple of more drinks, and then he said, you go home, and you write a book that says that Marvin Throneberry is the one single biggest moron in the f on the face of the earth, the moon, whatever the hell else is up there. They ain't got anybody more stupid than this son of a bitch, he says. Now you go home and write it, and you're going to do all right. Now get out of here and go home. <laughs>
I got on the train and I went home to Queens with this idea in my head and then uh, I went to sleep and I woke up. One, uh, to me, one of the tests of a good idea is its ability to last through the hangover. And, uh, 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 which this one did and it uh, became a book called Can Anybody Here Play This Game? And it did wonderfully well for me around town and I, I, I got out of writing sports and uh, began to do other things. Uh, the first of which was to look across from the house where I was living with my wife, whose uncle lived in Forest Hills where we were, and he had a house with the driveway next to the kitchen, a brick house, next to the kitchen door. And the, he had his car parked in the driveway. In the mornings, Uncle Louie, his wife would come out, he'd be at the kitchen table, his wife would come out in a fur coat over a nightgown and go out the kitchen door and into the car and start it while Uncle Louie sat on the kitchen floor with his arms over his head in case the dynamite in the car motor, uh, Jesus Christ, all of this, what? She also had, on the other side of her family, an uncle from Crown Heights named Monroe. That was the Jewish side of the family, who was equally as nervous in the morning, lest you laugh too loud. Uh, for the same reason, as Uncle Louie would come out, once the car did not blow up, the wife would slip out, he'd kiss her, she'd go back in the kitchen, he'd get in the car and drive away to his day's work, which was stealing. And, and I, I watched him, and I began to put it all together, and I wrote a book called The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight, and that did very well for me and started me off and on, a, on a grand scale and allowed me to blow all the money, and then ever since then, you're trying to chase the same uh, score. Uh, right now, I, I write a column three days a week for this newspaper, Newsday, and I am married and live in Manhattan. I had always lived in Queens, and then my wife died uh, nine years ago. And I met a woman on the west side whose husband had died some years ago, named Ronnie Eldridge, and we got married. Now, that meant I had six kids, Queens, Catholics. They had Italian and Irish blood mixed, although I just consider them Irish. And <laughs> three west side, she had herself and her three children, West Side, Jewish, and a mother. She had a mother. <laughs> and, uh, Jesus Christ. And we put this family together with predictable results. They, they, they detested each other. It has not changed all that much. Uh, in fact, to a point where uh, a year ago, a man came to us from Warner Brothers Television, uh, Larry Little, and he said, it's a terrific thing. I like the looks of this. Could we try and make a television pilot about the way you're living? You know, like, uh, I, I don't know. 
So we moved a rider in, and uh, then there was the strike, and the, the months went on, and finally they reached a point where he kept saying, I'm going to put this through. This is my pet project for the year. It's going to be a pilot for CBS. We're going to make it. I'm proud of this. He called me up. The script has been approved. Now we're going in a pilot. I love it. I'm going to cast it. It's great. So they cast it with James Farentino, an actor for me. They could, you know, rather than get Irish, they got him. And they got Lindsey Krauss, a bone Protestant, to play Ronnie Eldridge. <laughs> I mean, that's it. So that's what they did. Now they made the pilot. They spent $2 million for it. At the end of the pilot, they, which they announced that uh, Larry Little told me it, that he loves it, it's a great thing, and it's gonna go, I'm so proud I made this, it's great. Now, they came to New York. This week in New York City is a very nervous thing for that business. The three networks sit down with boards, each closeted in their offices, and they figure out the shows they're gonna put on in the fall. There's approximately 12 shows for every opening. So in the 21 bar or in these hotels, all the television executives wait nervously while the networks decide which shows they're going to uh, put on. And by Friday, they announce that most of the announcements will have been made. So this morning at 7.45, Larry Little gets very pessimistic, I guess. I don't know, but he called me up to say, your show is dead, I think. <laughs> and that's the way of that business. He's, uh, it's, whether it goes or it doesn't, I don't know, then somebody, and, uh, somebody else will call up and say, it's, you're alive. What they do is they sit in the bar at the 21 and they wait, and an alert office boy from CBS will walk in there and spread a rumor. You know, you got a short order for six, you'll be on Thursdays at eight. The guy goes crazy, have a drink, have lunch. So the kid is eating like royalty. Does not know, doesn't know. Cleaning, <clears throat> they've got cleaning women being taken to Le Cirque. <laughs> and they don't even watch television home, but they're saying, yeah, I saw the man, he threw that away, he said it was very good. What show? Your show. <laughs> and, and that's the way of the week in the world that, uh, that it doesn't seem to matter until you look at some of the things they put on with the guns and to see kids going around in places like the guest that didn't show lives where they imitate Miami Vice and thought it was great with the cars and the guns. And you see that it has had an effect and that when uh, person in Tupelo, Mississippi says that he's going to get after sponsors because they're putting sex on shows that he doesn't like. Uh, I understand the move. I think it's a great move. Go to the sponsors and scare these people, but I wish he would do it against the guns that kill people uh, first, and then he can get into his, uh, the worries about uh, his sex, uh, watching sex later because uh, the television, it seems to me, are looking at scripts. Every time they get in trouble, they just reach for a box of bullets, and that's the script. And, uh, I think the writing is desperate, and it shows, and, they, and when backed into, when troubled, when nervous, they go right into uh, gunshots. And I think, I think, without question, it's had a terrible effect on 
on this city. Now maybe Shakespeare used to litter the body, litter the stage with bodies, but that was in, in theater, and it had some rhyme to it, it had some reason, it had some sense to it. Television is seen by everybody, it's mindless, it just comes across like so much moving wallpaper, it never changes, one gunshot after the other, and I think it's had a dreadful effect on this country. Uh, well, you know, you don't have to, uh, I'm not smart, it doesn't take any brains when you watch a kid of 11 years old imitating how to shoot a gun, or that he runs around with uh, AK-47 or a Uzi in, in South Jamaica houses and shooting at people, and he does it with the same style they do on television, well, it, I mean, you don't have to be smart to know something's wrong. Common sense drawn out of the experience of watching the kid tells you that it's nuts to keep putting this stuff on television. That's all there is to it. And I think I, I, I would definitely call sponsors to put on violent shows. Because the violence is, that they put on is, is done. The more violent the show, you can bet the guy writing the script for the show has never even had a fist fight. It's always the, 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 the wildest violence you see you wrote it. Some skinny little gnome and he, he's never had anything. Once somebody scowled at him and he fainted in the schoolyard. He goes out to California, holy Jesus, what things he can figure out. Death, mangling, chainsaws, every damn thing. Crazy. You know? uh, and, I, and the television also has given us, I think, uh, this year it's going to show more than ever that the need for an easy answer to the crime that we're living with in the city. Uh, the two-word answer for television would be electric chair, death penalty, capital punishment. That would be a terrific way. It sounds good on the television. And then when you begin to look at it, just a little bit, uh, you wonder, I'm doing a book on the times of Damon Runyon in New York City and uh, what it was like then. And here I get to some stuff on a fellow named Murphy from the Bronx who was convicted of murder and sent to Sing Sing and he was to be electrocuted. And they shaved him and they put some black clothes on and there was a woman in the next, uh, down the cell, San Antonio, who was also up for being electrocuted. And her three children kept coming to the death house and wailing. And it used to bother Murphy, can't you keep your brats quiet? And she'd say, well, they're gonna, their mother is gonna be electrocuted, of course they're gonna scream. She says, well, shut up, it bothers me. Now, Murphy sat throughout the day and he said, they're not gonna take me, don't worry about it, I'm not going tonight. They had people saying prayers, they had other prisoners getting nervous because it's gonna be death night and Sing Sing, and he just sat there. When the warden came at 11.30, Murphy said, you can't do it, why? He said, because today was daylight savings time, and we lost, the, you took an hour out of my life, so I don't have a full day. <laughs> so the guy says, you know, he stopped, and Murphy says, you get me a lawyer, I'm gonna get a lawyer, because you're robbing me. You took an hour out of my life, and that means it's into a whole other day, and you got to do it tomorrow at the later, at the earliest. So they put it off for three months. It got put off for three months because of daylight savings time, during which he sang, and the women down the hall in the death house, her three children kept wailing every time they were around. You could hear them shriek. And they shrieked 
uh, much more loudly the night the woman was put in the electric chair and executed for uh, killing her husband. And Murphy went too. He had killed a guy in the Bronx. Finally, he went after all his uh, maneuverings. Uh, I think that uh, that shows the wackiness. If you're going to have, if these all these people that say they want the uh, the death penalty, then they, they better be prepared for somebody out of the Baisley houses who's got four children, a woman who shot somebody on a drug deal because the drugs are part of the life there. We've never given them any jobs and it's now the best job in the, in the Baisley houses or in the uh, 40 projects in South Jamaica. A kid like this 13-year-old kid could get almost $400 a week, $500 a week for a supervising crack uh, cooking in the morning in a woman's house and then helping distribute it at night. That's the most money ever seen in his family's history around here. He'll have somebody uh, kill somebody and you'll uh, sentence them to death. So now you can take wonderful pictures of the four kids wailing at the uh, prison walls while the mother is uh, executed. Now I wonder if people are ready for that. I, I, I just have to wonder about it. And I wonder if uh, you get somebody like Murphy, I remember the last guy, the next to last guy at Sing Sing that was executed was named Wood and he came out into a small chamber and he looked at everybody and he said, gents, uh, this isn't really a law taking its toll on me. This is what you're about to see is really an experiment. You're about to see the effect of electricity on Wood. Thank you. And he sat down. <laughs> and then they ran, the, ran the, through him, and he urinated all over the floor, as they always do. It's great sight and sounds and smell. It's a marvelous scene. And he was gone. That's the kind of nut you get. I know a little bit about it from my own uh, upbringing. We, uh, we had a, my grandmother had a brother-in-law who was a lieutenant in the New York City Police Department. He came out of Good Shepherd Parish in Inwood in Manhattan this is many, many years ago when I was pre-kindergarten even, I guess, in my time. And he went into a bar in Manhattan to get a drink, came in the back door, and there were two guys holding the place up, and they turned around when they saw the policeman come in, and a police officer, and they shot him. And he died, and the two were apprehended and convicted and sentenced to death. Uh, the widow of the policeman moved from the Good Shepherd Parish in Inwood into our house in Ozone Park in Queens. And the families of the two who were condemned to death uh, came around one day to try and see the widow uh, in order to persuade her to contact the governor of the state to ask for clemency for the two condemned men. They were refused admittance to the house. Subsequently, on the, on the day that the electrocution was to go forward, a telegram arrived at the house from the families. And I remember I had an uncle uh, who took the telegram and uh, very boldly ripped it up and the little yellow uh, pieces of it uh, fell on the wood porch. And uh, he went back in the house and, and uh, that night the electrocutions went on as scheduled. Two fellas died. And the, the woman, the policeman's widow, uh, didn't speak. She didn't speak that night, and she didn't speak the next day, and I never heard her speak again for as long as I saw her. She was struck dumb by what happened. 
and it left us with the feeling that uh, vengeance is at best quite empty and, and probably can be quite harmful. Uh, there was no, uh, there was very little satisfaction and a woman was unable to speak until the day she died. I'm told she went to Florida and we never heard any, any more from her. So we don't have, I don't see where that's going to take you very far. And the people that think that, well, even if it isn't going to be a deterrent, which it is, and it's a stupid thing, an electric chair, uh, even, if, uh, uh, even if it's always right and it isn't, you're going to make mistakes. Uh, Bobby McLaughlin is in Brooklyn. He was away on a homicide, and they found six years later, after he'd been convicted of murder, if we had a death penalty, he would have been executed already. They found an assistant district attorney in Brooklyn had, had kept evidence that showed he didn't do the crime and kept it hidden in her desk drawer to try and further her career. And uh, not Holtzman, it was an assistant working for Eugene Gold. And when that was discovered, they had to let McLaughlin out of Sing Sing prison, and he came home, and, he, and he'll tell you tonight, I'd be ashes on my stepfather on my mother's mantelpiece in an urn if you had death penalty in this state. So you can make mistakes. If you make mistakes this time, of course, you'll make one with uh, uh, Lydia Gonzalez from the Bronx with five kids. They'll get her husband, and he looks like a sure murderer, and he's gone and execute him, and then some lawyer will show up with a guy who did it. And now the city, which thinks they're going to make these minorities behave, with an, or the state, with an electric chair, will be faced with the task of determining which high school to give to the widow as an apartment uh, to make up for the husband's death. Uh, perhaps you could give a DeWitt Clinton High School as a settlement. They'll be in that size, the settlements when you make a mistake, and the blood will be on your hands. So we can have it. But even if they want to gamble everything and proceed blindly, I think at the end, they're going to find out that there's no fun in it. The thing really isn't any fun. And if there's no fun to the thing, then what the hell are they, what the hell are they going to scream for? Because it's a, it's a great thing for newspapers and it's a great thing for television, the first couple of electrocutions, and then after that the public interest wanes and it's all over until you make a mistake and then that's a big story. Now, we're left now, uh, I'm standing here and I'm talking to you. I came here with a woman who was going to talk out of the Baisley houses. I'm talking to you in the middle of the east side of Manhattan, which is a little dizzying when you think of the city, if you go around it as we know it. Uh, in Brooklyn, one day a young woman sat, there were two apartment houses left on the street in East New York, the rest is rubble. Young woman, 23, she'd had three kids, ages three, two, and one, the city took them away from her and told her that it's better if you put them into foster care, you really are having trouble taking care of them. So they sent them to foster care in the Bronx where a woman had five children in a basement. The woman put a refrigerator up against the door so nobody could break in while these children were asleep there. And of course a fire began and the firemen couldn't move the refrigerator because it turned cherry red. They were stuck outside and the children died inside and a, somebody from the 
Department of Social Services went around to Brooklyn to tell this young woman, 23, that her three children, ages three, two, and one, had just been burned alive in a fire. And when they spoke to the woman, and I got there to just talk to her, she was sitting on a couch in a just about vacant old apartment with a door, had no lock on it. Somebody else was sitting on a chair, a couple of people. She was smoking a cigarette and watching Hawaii Five O on a small black and white television. She was stunned by life before this happened. And as she sat there watching the television, it was just a continuing part of her life. She was stunned at a very early age. She really doesn't react to anything ever since. On the same way, that you get kids, not so much in the Central Park thing, because they were a, bit, a little bit more suburban in nature, that crime, but you'll get them in transit police headquarters or in, or in police stations all over the city. You'll come in, there's a kid, 15, on a homicide. He'll sit there and look at you and say, what's up? What's doing? Stunned by life early, has no reaction to it later on whether something's done to him or to her or they do to someone else. There's a minimum of feeling. You're living with hundreds of thousands of people who are stunned by life. And you, we're living here in a place where, I mean, you go outside tonight and you look up downtown and the lights from one building reach another. We keep all these lights on at night and they turn the sky into Gold. I mean, with all our money, we've been able to do away with the night sky in this city. Then we'll go to Brooklyn or to Queens, the Bronx, where hundreds of thousands are living in, in ways that we over here, if you're standing here, even if you know it, it's hard to imagine that it happens. I mean, you just get completely out of touch here. We've got these two places together and unless, I, I wouldn't have brought a politician around here tonight for all the money in the world because they do not know what, we're, what I'm telling you about. They do not know the first thing about this woman in this notebook. They're too arrogant to know and they're too afraid to go into these places and find out. They leave that to the police. And I think that's unfair to take all the social problems of the city that people are afraid to handle because they want five votes on a Tuesday in November and put them on the shoulders of a 22-year-old kid who's on the New York City payroll as a policeman. They're not supposed to handle all the social problems of the city. But at the same time, it's a, 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 it is a, a test that we're going through, and I think it's the only city in the world worth testing and the only city in the world that can take a test. Uh, how did we get here? Into New York, they came in the late 1940s and early 1950s, these sad-faced women with their arms leaden from holding children on the long ride in railroad coaches and buses from Jacksonville, Florida, and Waycross, Georgia, and Durham, North Carolina, and the Tidewater area of Virginia. Into New York, they came. They'd been driven off the fields, the cotton fields of the South by an invention called the John Deere 609 cotton picker. That was the machine that brought most people up here. And 
They came to New York because it was always said that there were jobs in New York and there was dignity, some measure of dignity for people. That was the belief. True or false, that's what people believed. And New York City always had a policy of feeding and clothing anyone who came to this city in need, an official policy of the city. Now, at the same time that people came from the South, there was a time of uh, enormous economic deprivation in Puerto Rico, and planes began landing at the old Idlewild Airport, loaded to the gunwales with people from Ponce and Salinas and the slums of San Juan, and they would get out in the middle of the night, a cold wind blowing off the Atlantic, coming across Jamaica Bay and whipping across the tarmac as people get off the plane in short-sleeved sports shirts or flowery dresses. Some addresses and a relative from the Bronx would run up and throw a coat over them. And I remember we called them uh, in the newspapers summer people in winter clothes. And these two influxes of people at the same time, the one from the South and the one from Puerto Rico formed a far greater number of arrivals at one time in New York than ever occurred during the time of the great crushes coming through Ellis Island from Naples and Salerno and Palermo and uh, Odessa and Galway and Cork City and Ireland and Donegal, where all the people came from that formed this country. But when the people from other countries came here, the Jews from Eastern Europe or the Italians from Southern Italy, uh, they were treated as, uh, was, uh, at least in the eyes of those who sat down and fashioned statues and wrote songs and poems and preserved them in books, the great immigrant experience. It's one of the, we say it's the great chapter in America. But the people that were coming in now were not foreigners, they were Americans. They were Puerto Ricans and they were Southern blacks coming to New York, but they, they were not white. So therefore we would, uh, there were no poems and no statues and no books written about them at all no song. There was one song, Going to Chicago, that, but with uh, Joe Williams singing, I remember that took care of people coming up from Mississippi and Alabama to Chicago. But that was the great song anyway they sang coming up here, Going to Chicago, sorry but I can't take you. That meant coming to Brooklyn too. When they came into Brooklyn and uh, into the Bronx, into a city which had an official policy of feeding and clothing. If you couldn't make it here, uh, a lot of people left, a lot of white people left, many, 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 hundreds of thousands left, and they took small businesses with them. And suddenly there were no jobs for these new immigrants. And the city had this official policy and it began to take care of people. Now it was an official policy that was uh, to do a lot of harm to this city because it brought it to its knees financially, and it was, when you look at it, this official policy of trying to feed and clothe too many poor, one for which the city of New York shall forever be proud. It is from this point on that we must somehow see if 
just see if we can't take the pride at sticking to a principle and trying to take care of people and turn it from a, a, a negative reaction that just we'll, we'll try and do, we'll try and take care of them into something positive. We'll try and make them into what we are, the same. We'll give them the same chance we had. Give them the exact same chance as the ones who went before them. Give somebody uh, in South Ozone Park whose family came up here from North Carolina the same chance that somebody from Odessa got when they arrived here, or from Donegal, or from Cork City, or from Salerno. The exact same chance. If we could do that, then I think that this test that the city's being given will show that we are not only the only ones in the world who can accept such a test, we're the only ones in the world who ever could pass it. Thank you. I'm very good. Trying to blame drugs on, uh, on Bolivia, Colombia is like trying to blame smoking on Kentucky. Come on, I mean... Uh, uh, well, well, first of all, if you say to them, why do you take crack, they say, why not? It's fun. That's the one thing all these stories leave out. Everybody says the drug problem, the drug problem, this, that. They like it. <laughs> now you got a real problem that, that they want the thing, right? A guy told me it's a 15-minute orgasm and you chase it from the, and I've been chasing the same thing ever since, trying to catch it back again. Uh, absolutely, they get caught, they're caught in the trap, but they like it, it's part of an economy, and uh, it isn't all just, uh, black people in tenements taking it, now come on. I'm, I mean, they all drive in from, Nassau County and buy it, and they all come over the bridge from Jersey. A lot of people are using it, and it'll start to, it'll start to make its presence known in those places. You Absolutely, in black neighborhoods, in poor neighborhoods, in poor neighborhoods. Well, you didn't put any jobs in there. You never put any jobs in there. So they went out and they found their own jobs. That's all. If you don't like what the job is, then what are you yelling now? The time to worry was before. I mean, he's got a job, he gets paid, God bless him, cash the check, but shut up, don't talk to me. You, know. you, ever hear these <clears throat> you ever hear these politicians talk about this stuff? 
we must do something, we must find a solution to this problem. That's their answer. It's pathetic. Well, the solution, obviously, the solution is if they care about themselves enough, they're not going to go on drugs. They'll go, they'll go someplace. Here, the woman that was going to come here, she lost one out of her five, but she's got four that she cares enough for that she'd be able to get. She's got two of them. She's pretty sure, sure she can get them through it, this life. Uh, there's a woman in, the, in Brooklyn in, in the Sumner housing I know. Now, she's raised three kids. She's got one daughter in college, one son on the police force, and one junkie. She batted two, two out of three living alone trying. I was pretty good in tough circumstances, baby, and she did it. There are people trying. It's simply the one that's a cop and the one that's going to college. They don't want drugs. Why? Because they got a shot at something better. <laughs> You're not going to get it. Nobody wants to spend a quarter doing it, so what are you but talking that, about? That's, that's where the, the problem is, you're saying. Obviously, it's not No, and, and the school teachers, what the hell, uh, tell the truth, the school teachers don't like blacks, and the blacks don't like the white school teachers, so that's, we're off to a smashing start in grammar school. Yeah, you could hiss, but it's true. Yeah, well. They could, it's true, I'm sorry, hiss. I'll hiss, I'll hiss myself, but it's true. Well, and if they're doing so well, why does a white can nobody can read and write? There's got to be a reason, so I would have to say it's race. Speaking to the point of, of um, political solutions, hmm. uh, you, in the, I think you said in the column where you were Marty Corbett is saying that um, uh, Giuliani is the next mayor. Yeah, October, it's over. It's done. Done. Yeah. Because it's done. If I said so. Tell them to call me. Want my home number? Give it to them. Uh, how, does anybody in here actually think Giuliani will not be the mayor? Let me see. Uh, you think? You want, you want to go into Queens and ask that question? Come on. It's over. It's over in this room. You saw. Wow. Uh, You made the uh, Believe me. Uh, don't worry. I don't want to believe you. I want you to explain it to me. The phenomenon. Why do you think he hit such a nerve? He hit such a nerve because people, because of the one word, the crime. They think, they just think whether he can do anything about it or not is a whole other story. They just think he can. That's the perception. He's honest, which this city administration isn't. It's the most uh, corrupt we've ever seen. And, uh, oh yeah. Oh, it's larcenous. Holy jeez, they stole everything. You better get somebody in, in City Hall before they sell the joint. And, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the honesty with the, the dishonesty was so bad that, uh, did you remember that city source thing they had? The computer Stanley Friedman had? That was gonna, the, the guy would, 
do it out on the street, he would take your overtime parking number and punch it in the computer and would go back into the mainframe in the city building, and he was going to make $34 million. They had $12 million from the city and $13 million from a stockbroker, D.H. Blair and Company. They had it all rigged, and they had a picture of a computer. The whole thing was on a picture that nobody even looked at. That was all they had. I had a friend who was selling stock over the phone at Blair, and he's very nervous. He doesn't want to go to jail. And they told him, sell this stock. He said, could I see the computer? They said, here it is. He said, not a picture. I want to see the thing, if there's politicians involved. So in comes a scruffy guy. He said, I work for Stanley Friedman. What do you want to know? And he said, I'd like to see the uh, machine. So he said, I'll be back next week with it. So the guy came in with a thing as big as the lectern, a jukebox, with two people carrying it. The specification said it was one pound would fit in a traffic agent's hand. And he said, why is it so big? He said, Stanley Friedman is getting the size down. So he said, let me see it work. So the guy punched it, and every time he punched a number, a thing would go bzzzt, and, it'd be, and then he'd punch another one, and it'd go bzzzt again. And my guy looked at it, and he said, all you got is a typewriter with lights. And that's all it was. On that, my guy stopped selling. He said, I'm not going to, you know, I prefer, because that, and he was right, because a week later, a guy came in and said, I'd like to talk to you about the city source, and he said, I don't handle it. And the guy said, we do, FBI. And he was in to talk to him about it. Koch and, every, and everyone in City Hall okayed $12 million for, the, for that uh, machine without even looking at it, because Stanley Friedman said it was all right, and uh, because Koch was used to taking orders like that. You had, uh, you had the Brooklyn organization meet Esposito. That was Paul Castellano and a guy by the name of Carmine Lombardozzi who thinks he's the new Frank Costello. He maneuvers. That's gangsters, and they're afraid they'll get punched around by them. They put Amoroso in there, who just was a front for gangsters. Now, Stanley Friedman was, always wanted to be a tough guy. He used to imitate gangsters in college. He was in with Tony Salerno in the Bronx. They're afraid they'll get blown up if they turn down Stanley Friedman. Fat Tony Salerno, the guy with the cigar. And Roy Cohn was always in there. Now, he's in City Hall with the computer. Well, who's going to say no? Maybe you'll get hurt. And Koch is running around saying, when can I go on television? <laughs> you know. Uh, I mean, it's a joke. I mean, the thing. So Giuliani, at least you know, is honest. Uh, uh, and, and that he's, uh, he's crime and he'll do something about the crime they think, that's all. So therefore, he's unbeatable. Forget about it. Don't talk to me about it anymore. Yes, it would make it, they scream that people, I mean, people are tormented, and they scream, maybe that's the answer. It isn't when you look at it. It's probably the one worst thing you can do, because now you're not only not going to affect the crime about you, you're going to make yourself lousy. One of the... One of the things about the drugs that I'm most frightened about, I sound like a 
profound, but I'm afraid you're going to lose your rights over these damn drugs. They'll start these search and seizures. They'll start cutting into that. They'll scream electric chair. All things that you've spent all these centuries, uh, these hundreds, decades, putting together as a way of life, you can lose over a $5 vial of crack. I mean, it's, it's, that's why I'm afraid that that penalty takes you down. John didn't like him. That was the first thing. He didn't want anything to do with him, that's all. No, I, I just, all I, I just was struck by a thought one night I was watching. Gotti was brought in on some charge in the middle of the night in the criminal court, and they had a, right standing behind him, they had a young, small uh, female court officer who was standing there. And uh, here's John, he had his hands clasped nice, he was being nice, and I'm saying that the, the, uh, the court officer was the safest person in the city of New York that night because the God, he's a gentleman, yes ma'am, no ma'am. And uh, then they had to put him in a cell with Steinberg who looks to beat up women. I mean, it was unfair to God, he say what you will about him. He wouldn't hit a woman. I like to see that Steinberg hit Mrs. John Gotti. She'd make a very good criminal court judge for people like that. <laughs> Send him in the room. He won't come out. You don't have to wait for him. They're not very good on beating up women. Say what you will about them. Say anything else about that outfit. I know them. I come from Ozone Park. They've been on that street corner, the Bergen Hunt and Fish Club forever. Uh, the men, as they're called. It should go see the men. He's one of the men. That's the men in the area. And uh, they're always unfailingly courteous to women. And uh, always, oh no, oh, God forbid one of them should ever say anything fresh to a woman. No, sir. Oh, well. say no. Kill the guy, but leave the woman alone. <laughs> I like it. I, the, the gentleman that's putting the play on here in New York, Joseph Papp, I just love his, 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 his manner and the way he, he talks to me, and I, I like that. He, he, he said uh, that he's going to supervise this personally because, uh, after all, he said, uh, uh, I care for you, even though I know you don't, and I feel responsible for you, even though I know you don't feel responsible for me. And then he walks away. <laughs> that's it. I like it. Arrogant. Flashy. He's very good. <laughs> it's a great quality, arrogance, you know. It's my favorite quality. I like it.
I said that he's terrific. And he, he just he said to me that uh, uh, he feels responsible for me and my work, even though, uh, as he said, I know that you don't feel responsible for me. Oh, well, then I don't. <laughs> You're probably right. She's probably telling the truth, the only one. No, absolutely not. No, the other way around. The, uh, absolutely the other way around. I think both of them would, would put a little dignity into a subject that's been loused up by a lot of people, such as Koch, who's a blatant racist, that Lester Maddox of the North. <clears throat> I, think, I, think that, uh, I think that Dinkins and Julia... I think both of them are far above that. I think the constituency is the television camera, and they'll speak to the cameras in, in a way that will be uh, much better than we've seen in campaigns in a long time when the subject of race comes up. So I can't hear you. Can you hear that? Yeah, I can hear. I know what it's about. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm, a, I'm, I'm. Well, what are you supposed to do? Not talk about it? I guess my opinion. Ah, oh, the trouble is I do. Next question, please. Yeah, well, what am I going to say? No, yes, absolutely, I agree. Yes. Well, I mean, it, it, they, and then when they do, I've noticed the places, they, they're breaking up the welfare hotels now and they're moving them out to, uh, uh, you know, into, if possible, a three-fare zone, if they could find one. What does a legalization mean? 
You give it to a kid in grammar school whenever he wants it. You're going to have some control over it, no matter what you do. But it's not, it's not as simple as prohibition because, as I've said, this has become part of the life of poor neighborhoods. And I think it goes beyond the usage of the drug now. It's the best business in most of these neighborhoods, most successful business. Keeps all these stores going. Stores are flourishing, small stores, all flourishing. It's all that money. I think it's, I think it's a lot more complicated than that. And I, I don't know about prohibition. I wasn't alive then. I, I'm alive during this. And I know that if you do end drugs, you're going to still have to have controls. And the minute you have to have controls, there'll be uh, people doing it illegally. There's a... There's a... There's a about Joe Doherty. He is a young man who escaped uh, after killing British soldiers in, in Northern Ireland. He escaped to the United States. And Mrs. Thatcher on the uh, floor of Parliament announced that she was personally going to involve herself in the case to get him extradited back to Northern Ireland and British justice where he would be tried for murder. His, uh, the shootings occurred during a, a, what the Irish considered was a political war, their side against the British soldiers. A federal judge in New York City, Spritzel, ruled exactly that, said he was here as a political refugee. But the government, uh, mostly the Attorney General, the past Attorney General Meese, uh, heeding, uh, trying to take care of Mrs. Thatcher's complaint, uh, wouldn't have him uh, freed on bail and tried to uh, deport him and all legal maneuvers have been going on now for six years and therefore he's in the Metropolitan Correctional Center never having committed a crime in in this country uh, with a federal judge having ruled that he's a political refugee and we are we're always supposed to honor them he's been in the MCC here in New York longer than John Gotti longer than Fat Tony Salerno longer than uh, he's he's been as he's been sitting there each morning a kid from northern ireland he tells me here comes stanley simon from the bronx on his way out to you know turn himself in stays there overnight then they send him out to a some place a, a prison where he now is here comes probably mario biaggi well he wasn't in there but he's in, he keeps a track of everybody's met all big names they've all gone and he's still sitting there because we uh, are trying to uh, cater to Margaret Thatcher. And it's a, a foreign government interfering in uh, United States business. Bettering their lives, and the kid is earning 400 bucks a week. And this gentleman says he's a journalist; he doesn't earn that much. 
to the inequities here. Can we? The best you could do is if you're a parent of the kid, is hope that the kid brings the money and gives it to you each week so that you don't have to ask him for it, which would put you, which would be an overt act on your part and put you in as part of the business of selling it. You'd rather sit there and what they hope for is that the kid will bring, just put the money on the kitchen table, table money, and leave. And they won't be guilty of having pushed them into selling it. That's about the best you can get out of a household in, in these places today. I don't, I, I agree with you, I don't see how, uh, how are you gonna tell a kid don't do it? Don't bring home $600 this week. What do you think about the law that holds, the California law that holds parents responsible for the crimes of children in this area, Jimmy? Oh, hey, don't clap. We'll all be in jail. Stop it. Come on. Good, good question. Not idea. I don't think much of it. Yeah, as... I mean, come on. Everybody, you're this close somewhere in the time raising kids. No. The queer, the, that, I don't understand that. The, was that was a suburban, question. you know that crime, the woman in the, I, I stayed away from that. The woman in the Central Park, was, that was a vicious attack. We, we know that. <clears throat> we pray for a recovery. It also is something that's more common to, uh, to uh, Paoli, Pennsylvania, or to Dixon, Illinois, than it is to New York City. Our crimes here in New York are committed with guns over drugs. This was a suburban crime. You always see the high school beauty if they, she's found cut up in the woods near the athletic field and the two lovely young students, quiet young students, uh, wind up arrested for the crime. Uh, that, was a, that was almost like a suburban crime. We haven't had, that was, that was, Yes. In Valley Stream, where they grabbed the kid and cut it up. I don't think you can blame that. Are you gonna stop blaming it on parents? No, I don't, I don't want to do it. The one parent, I just met the one parent of Richardson. He was a Marine Corps sergeant who came up here from Norfolk, Virginia because he thought he could get more jobs and make a good life for himself. And now he winds up with a kid on a homicide. I mean, what are you going to do? The guy tried. He really did. Yes? Yeah, I, I mean personal observation, personal experience. Yeah, personal experience of them seeing them give them. A Just a question, please. Just questions. Okay. Just well, questions. I, I never said they didn't use it for themselves, but they do bring some money home a lot of times. And you're saying are the parents? Are the parents? Uh, hey, the parents can't read and write, and they have kids that can't read and write. A lot of times. Yes, over here. I'll repeat the question. Go on. In your early remarks, <coughs> you talked about 
question is, over the decades, Jews have learned to take care of their Jews. Cubans in Florida took care of their fellow Cubans. Irish knew how to take care of their own. It seems to me that, and forgive my mm. potential sounding of racism, I hope it's not, it seems to me that blacks tend to close ranks and not publicly address problems. There have been 30 years now, three decades. Why is the black leadership, especially in New York City, not standing tall and forward and making greater demands of their own people. The question is why, oh, let me just repeat okay? The question is why, since over the years, various other groups such as Jews, Cubans, Hispanics, and others have banded together to help those who were moving influxes into other areas and other lives, help them, why have the blacks and the black leadership in New York not stood tall and recently stood tall in helping their own in, in, in their times of crisis? Jimmy? I don't even want to compare the people of where they came from uh, and what they came here with and what their backgrounds were and their families were. They came here from Ireland or from uh, Russia uh, or to compare them with somebody, a product of slavery off of Durham, North Carolina. But what we all would like at this time, and in my heart I probably would like it too, would be for some black leader that you could identify as the boss of the blacks, the head of them all, to stand up and berate his people for this attack on Central Park and force them to apologize and thereby making us all feel good. Well, the truth of the matter is they don't have any leaders. They're, so, they're, they're splintered. They have nothing. They're people stunned by life. I told you that they, they, uh, the girl lost three kids and she's watching Hawaii 5-0. The young kid shoots somebody and he says, what's doing? They're stunned. That's what you've got. If you don't like to hear it, I can't help you, but that's what it is. They don't have anybody who can stand up and tell them, now you all stand up and say you're sorry for the attack on the girl. They don't. Yes, a young woman there in the middle. No. Wait a minute. Did you hear that? No. I'm sorry, could you repeat that more loudly? Stand up, please. Can't hear you. How did you first get involved with the Son of Sam case? I lived in Forest Hills in Queens. There were two young women shot within five blocks of my house, and I never did very much about it. I, don't I wrote one column about it once. And uh, then one day I received a letter from in a strange printing from this fellow when they took a finger, they took a palm print off the letter and it was the same fellow they were looking for. Then I figured if he, if he knew where to write me and he killed two people within five blocks of the house, that's starting to get a little close for me. And I got very interested in the case. <laughs> and then as far as the conspiracy goes, all I can tell you is the night he was picked up, they sat him in a room. He was sitting in the, the detective's headquarters in, the, in the New York City, and the people walked in to see him. Everybody had been chasing him, and they took one look at him and said, look at this, we got a fruitcake, and they walked out, and that's all he was. He had oatmeal for brains, and he couldn't conspire to turn off a, a light half the time. And then other times he was deranged and could shoot and run around and write things and hurl words around. So... No, there was no conspiracy except between two parts of his brain that were clashing. Yes, 
What is your uh, opinion of the uh, certain kinds of uh, New York State laws that allow juveniles to commit crimes and then not be prosecuted as adults? Or, and then be prosecuted as adults? You take the case. I don't know if you had a specific case we could talk about it. I know the law, the law was changed by Willie Boskett. He shot two people on the Broadway subway line and he boasted they can't do anything to me because I'm under 16 and they have to let me out in a year. And uh, that changed the law, his boasting. I, I don't know, that, I, I don't know, you'd have to take it a case at a time. But as always, the, the first time they, they got two kids, the first time they changed that law and they tried two kids as adults, uh, they were 14 years old, they'd started a fire in a, in, a, in a basement in the Bronx and it killed people. And uh, when, when they began to do business with them, they found they were just two blanks and, and you just couldn't try them. Two kids didn't know where they were, two goopy kids. Mm. I don't know, I'm not that good with it. Unless you're looking to put, have an electric chair and then we'll put 10 and 11 year olds in the electric chair, I think that might be something they could think of. Yeah. Well, what high school you go to? This young man is from LaGuardia yeah, School and, and said it's that he's concerned about the... the uh, I, I, by, by high school, it's all... I mean, we're not talking... Uh, any statements I'm making don't include kids who go as far as high school. I mean, you're talking about uh, grammar school and junior high school dropouts or kids that are in there uh, just going to school and going nowhere. It's high school already. That's the honors. Yes, back there. The question is, will Jesse Jackson, if he's elected, have any magic solution to the crime problem? No, because uh, it's, uh, it's money. I mean, they'll say, I love Jesse Jackson, but I can't eat him for lunch. They, they, I mean, so I, eat, I can't get a gold chain with Jesse Jackson. No, it's not that, you know, I think he'd have a, he'd have a positive effect. The, uh, the relief on the part of Democrats would be sensational. <laughs> Yes? No? no, over here. Mr. Bradley, sort of a follow-up question that occurred to me. <coughs> Answering the question about black leadership. Somehow or other, you ignore the fact that we had a black candidate for presidency of the United States. Somehow or other, he doesn't want to have anything to do with the real problems in the United States. Well, neither did it. Well, wait a minute. Neither, he was the only candidate that mentioned the problems in New York City. If you go back into the, into the primaries, you will note that uh, both Gore and Dukakis agreed that they would not discuss drugs when they came into the New York primary because it was a boring, the public was bored with it and it was such a depressing topic they didn't want to bring it up. Jackson was the only one who opened his mouth about it. Now, he is, uh, you brought up an obvious exception to rule. Now, you want Jesse Jackson to come in and make us all feel good by curing uh, Harlem and Brooklyn. It can't be done. It cannot be done. Uh, this, the, the crack is not a, uh, crack is money. Look, all, all immigrant races in this city made it by first controlling their own crime. Uh, the Irish, the Jews, the Italians, you control your own crime, then you control politics, the next step. 
Now, the blacks have never controlled any crime. They have always worked. They've delivered dope for uh, all whites. If, they, uh, if they've been in numbers, they only worked as runners and messengers for whites. It's always been whites controlling the crime and blacks working for them. Now comes a, a uh, merger of brown hands from Colombia and, and other countries down there and black hands of Miami and in New York and from the island of Jamaica and places like that. They all get together, they have this cocaine and they come up with a drug called crack. Now, they're controlling it. There's no whites controlling it at all. To date, so far, you can't even find them paying off white police. They've been shooting at them. That's gonna come, you'll be rocked by that. That's inevitable to come, there's so much money around. But so far, they haven't even developed the white underworld sophistication of paying off the police. So now, uh, they control a crime, uh, one crime, they finally controlled, in a way, when you look at crack, you could make the claim it's the first healthy sign you've seen in, these, in, in poor neighborhoods. They control it. But what do they control? They control the one worst piece of the devil's hand we've ever seen. When they choose a crime, it isn't numbers, it isn't Shylocking, it isn't gambling, it's crack. It's the worst. But it's economics. Yes. And no, no one candidate is going to tell them, now you put that down. You know, or, and if they don't sell crack, that's good. They don't sell it. That means it'll all go away. Ridiculous. Back there, yes? Question, please. Okay, no. I, give, I give up. Okay. <laughs> Let's hear it. The question is, the question is, do you agree that the, it is basically not the black on the street level, but the government and the power structure that are making all this money from Bush down, uh, that are the problem? Jimmy? They found... Uh, that's a lot of money on the street, too. I agree they do not... The people on the streets, the one thing that's good is that they are very poor at uh, distributing drugs. They don't have a good system. If they ever had a system of distributing crack which would be equal to that of, say, a toothpaste salesman who goes around and stocks his stores properly, we would be in a lot worse trouble. And the way it's going now, I think you'll find that they are going to have people who can distribute it well. There is a uh, survival of the fittest going on in these neighborhoods now, which is going to produce the most awesome criminals ever seen in this city. Uh, Young, mean, lean, and a terribly adept. 
We, we've got trouble. We've never. Yep. In, all, in all fairness, Jimmy, let me ask you to ask the second part, answer the second part yeah, of the question, what, which is, is it going what about push? the power structure, though? What about the. Well, what, the what, South what American extent, government, the certainly. And American. American governments, I know the CIA was involved in bringing drugs in, weren't they, by plane? That's generally put in. Uh, is the money going right to Bush? I don't think so. I don't think any. Okay. No, I don't think okay. so. Somebody's making. I don't know. Back there, yes. I don't know that. Yes. It's Would you want your job. children to be police officers? Yeah, I had three in the family. It's a proud job, yes. What's the matter with you? Very good, Jim. I assume the implication is a question of severe well, danger. Well, the job, uh, absolutely, danger. the crime has made, has made the job the toughest it's ever been because it's the most dangerous it's ever been. No question about it. But still an honorable profession, a patrolman of the police department of the city of New York, and I wish incidentally they would be do more patrolling unless it is uh, buy and bust and not things, these exotic things that don't work. The first thing they do, you get a, a, a man as a patrolman and you put him out on the street and he's supposed to patrol and the first thing he looks to do is to get into an uh, anti-crime unit. I thought they're all anti-crime police. <laughs> <laughs> and when you go into a police precinct, in the middle of the day in particular, it looks like a high school hallway with so many people inside, and you begin to wonder what the hell is everybody doing in here. They belong out on the street. The one thing they don't want to do is what they get hired to do, patrol. Over here, yes. What do you think of whom? Ben Ward. What do you think of Ben Ward, no, police commissioner? I, 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 you never. I've. He just. He leaves me speechless. I don't know what he does. <laughs> you don't know what he does? I don't know. The answer is Jimmy doesn't know what he does. <laughs> I think. I think he does. I think he pulls the same thing Cuomo does. Uh, uh, Cuomo uh, raises his uh, eyebrows or he or he. Uh, Twitch his shoulder and catching those fellas faint in City Hall. They easily physical intimidation. Ward starts to thunder and they cower and he does what he wants. It's that simple. That's half the secret of his success, most of it. He stands up and he screams, I've had enough of this, you and he walks out and they're all afraid and they never touch him. I mean, you not only got the dishonest people, but you got cowards in the city hall. Over there in the corner, yes? yes. If the economics of the, uh, is the central issue of the uh, drug problem, uh, yeah, can you remove be. the rewards from it, and wouldn't that be the answer? Well, what, how are you how, gonna, how do you, I don't know how, how we move the rewards. It. I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't, I don't know how you're going to do it. I'm not, I don't even pretend to have an answer. We got in so deep in this thing, I don't know where the hell we are. I, 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 oh, the only place I can think of is to start in schools. That's my, the answer, I can't see to stop somebody. I think, incidentally, I think it's an act of insanity to close the New York City public schools this summer and send kids out onto the street who can't read and write. 
Nothing. I mean, if Castro was smart enough in Cuba to pull a literacy program, why we can't have a literacy drive in New York City and just keep the school o schools open all summer? I mean, we're nuts not to. And that isn't just a, a statement thrown off on a stage here. That is common sense. You bet it is. Yes. What'd you say? Any yeah, thoughts like about him. Ronald Lauder? He's good. He's spending a lot of money. You know, it's a crime it wasn't the old days. I'm reading all this Runyon stuff, you know, when they really had a lot of thieves hanging around the newspaper business. They would form a payroll, you know, in the old days with a guy named Lauder, and it would have lasted a long time. It would have been a great experience, great for the city. Now they don't do that anymore, so you just have to watch him as he gives the money to television. I'm envious, frankly. I'd like to see him get robbed in saloons by guys. You know, promise them they do things for him. But it's still, it's still nice to see a sucker get rolled. <laughs> Back there, yes? I'm sorry, could you repeat the question, please? The question is, you mentioned, for example, that television has exacerbated some of the social problems here in the city. What do you see as the role of the press in helping to solve these problems? If uh, television and other, other media have exacerbated uh, the, uh, the social problems in the city, what do you see as the role of the press in sol helping to solve these problems? None. You tell a go out and, and you get the story and put the name and address in right and put it in the paper and let you solve it. That's not, I'm not a social worker. Hey, I root for disaster every morning. <laughs> Gotta sell papers. Oh, are you kidding me? I mean, uh, you read about a ferry boat went down in Hong Kong Harbor with 900, oh, they always have 900 on one of those ferries that go down. And you always wonder why the hell couldn't it be the Staten Island Ferry? What business of <laughs> so much for the role of the media in solving social problems. Uh, uh, any other? Two more questions, I think. We'll do, have room for them. Back there. Question, please. Right. The question is, how do, how do the, uh, what is the process by which the editorial uh, people at the newspapers or the media choose which crime to emphasize so that suddenly you get a big wave on the Joel Steinberg case or some other case? What is the, what is the process that, that does that? Steinberg was white, Hedda Nussbaum was white, and the jogger was white. That's simple. Have there been no crimes with, which have been terribly a big surge of interest, including non-white people? Tawana Brawley. Tawana Brawley, yeah, they, 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 and they would, 
and they went nuts when well, they found yeah. out that she made it up. That was the great thing. When are we going to find out that she lied? That was the motive for that one. Uh, the only... No, well, I mean, I'm telling you, if I'm a circulation manager, what do you want me to sell? Uh, a, a woman in, in, in Brooklyn that got thrown off a rooftop or had a nussbaum? You're not suggesting well, circulation managers make these decisions, are you? No, but I mean, <laughs> hey, I got to get paid at the end of the week, and I'm not going to get paid with Nostrand Avenue as much as I am with Head and Nussbaum. You want to know the truth? And the television is, and you're not going to read it or watch it on television. Come on. Last question. That was, a, that was the one exception to the rule where the press and the thank, well, whatever the press is, I owe media, the plural of mediocre, I always think it is. Uh, uh, the, 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 my business, whatever it is, tarnished trade, uh, forced the Howard Beach, forced that out of, a district attorney was not going to do anything about that case. They forced uh, the governor to put in a special prosecutor who performed wonderfully well, got a conviction, which I submit is the one most important conviction in 20 years around here, because now you can turn on these people in a, similar, in a worse attack, blacks on whites. Howard Beach was whites on blacks, convicted, after an excruciating trial, now you can go after them with equal vigor and a clear conscience. Thank God for that Howard Beach decision. Yes. And that was newspapers. Let, up there. Repeat that question to me, would you? Is, <clears throat> well, I come from, do I, I read a lot about Jamaica? I mean, I come from that area, and I was there, to, you know, I've been there quite a bit lately, yes. I mean, it's I don't still know. in your heart, he says. Jeez, yeah. I, I don't even know what's in my heart. I've got to tell you the truth. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I go there, but I, I, I mean, you know, I don't, it doesn't skip wildly at the sight of me. <laughs> Okay, after we've plumbed Jimmy's heart about Jamaica, one last one that, on, the, on the aisle, that lady there. How effective do you think Cardinal O'Connor is as a leader in the city? I don't know. I, I gotta. I. He doesn't. My heart does not skip so wildly with him, but. Uh, look, if he. I. We were just talking, uh, the lawyer from one of these kids that's in trouble was just on this jogging thing. We were just talking about that the other night. Uh, I said, aren't you uneasy? The guy went in to see your client without you even knowing it. And he said, uh, anything he can do walking around talking like that that will make people feel a little bit more at ease, I'll accept as good. Maybe he might even be... You know, helping a little there. I think he doesn't know the first thing about the world when he's going to go to Lebanon is if, uh, you know, you spread your hands and they're going to stop shooting at each other. I don't know. And I don't think he knows black, uh, blacks very well at all in this city. Uh, I, I, but uh, I don't think it's, I think it's peripheral. Okay. Uh, okay, this is... Unfortunately so, too. 
I, but then I'd like to say I haven't seen anybody from any other organized religion put his nose out the door since this thing happened. I'll say that. The uh, last question is raining out, and we want one last. Over me, there. Let me go. What do you think about the black Muslim attempt uh, and the, the way of, of dealing with uh, the drug problem and solving it? It's very attractive to a lot of people in Brooklyn, I'll tell you that. And uh, it's very frightening and chilling when you see them patrolling a neighborhood and uh, uh, you have no rights. Uh, that, that, that's all gone. It's fascism. And it works for a while. Oh, no. I, Isn't that what you're talking about, about the blacks taking care of their own? No, not no. that one. I don't believe Come that. Come on, I didn't believe that. I'm not that. Uh, Goodbye. Go on that note, thank you. Thank you for listening to this 92i program. For more information, visit 92i.org. This program is copyright 1989 by the 92nd Street Young Men's and Young Women's Hebrew Association.